Let's pray. Our gracious God and our Heavenly Father, we have been singing of your great love for us. We think about your grace, we think about your mercy, we think about what it meant for you, a holy God, to welcome sinners back, not just as servants or slaves, but as sons and daughters, to have the opportunity to have a new life, a new start, a new birth, to experience forgiveness and pardon, to understand the plan that you have for our lives, the destiny that is ours in Christ. We give you thanks, Lord. We thank you that your word is truth and that by your truth you set us free. And so, Father, I pray now as we handle the word of truth that your spirit might speak to our hearts, Lord, that where there is death, there might be life, that where there is discouragement and despair, you might provide hope. That where there is uh, desire, Lord, that we might find fulfillment. And so we pray, God, even as we read your word, we, we ask that your spirit might move in our audience in such a way, Lord, that it would be evident that you are in our midst. And that by your word you are speaking to us and that through your spirit you're changing us. And we just ask this all for your glory, God. Because we were created for your glory. We exist for your glory, and we find our, our deepest meaning and our highest fulfillment in giving you glory. And so we pray that we might glorify you today, that our lives might show forth the work of the Lord Jesus, and that we might honor him by the things we say and the way we treat one another and how we conduct our lives in the week ahead. For we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Would you turn in the Bible to the book of James chapter 1, please? James chapter 1. We're going to be looking at a couple of verses in James chapter 1, but for the sake of context, we're going to start with verse 1 and read a few verses in the beginning of the chapter and then jump down later on in the chapter. James chapter 1, verse 1, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If you would jump now down to verse 12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren." Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. 
as we've been reminded this morning already, we are in the season of Advent. It is the season uh, to be shopping, right? <laughs> okay, so how many of you are done with your Christmas shopping? Raise your hand. Let's give that person a round of applause. Can I be on your Christmas list, please? <laughs> All right, now, how many of you have not yet started shopping for Christmas? All right, let's, you have our sympathies. <laughs> we, are, uh, we are in that season where everyone begins to think about finding the right gift, the perfect gift. We have different traditions in different families. In my home, because uh, of our extended family, we have a, a, a lottery in our family. And what we do is we put all the names of our family that's going to be together on Christmas Day, and we all pick a name out of the hat, and that's the person we shop for. And so, you know, my, my son said it best, I hate the person I got. And, and, and his dear mother said, why? Why? Because I have no idea what to get her. And my dear wife said, do you want to switch? Uh, but he said, no, I'll, 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 I'll soldier on. But the idea then of having someone in mind to try to find something for them, something that would be significant, something that would be meaningful, it's a challenge. It's a challenge, especially as we were reminded in the first service, that we live in such a, a, a country of abundance such a country of affluence. We have so much stuff already. I don't need another tie. And some of you are saying, yes, brother, you do not need another tie. You have made too many ties. Uh, and by the way, um, I don't know, Alan commented about the brightness of my shirt. I don't know if you've noticed it. No, not at all. Um, I do it so that you stay awake during the sermon. Uh, uh, no, honestly, this is how I dress for work. I dress like this every day, well, almost every day at work. And so I figure if I'm going to dress like this for my students, I can, I can dress like this on Sunday. So uh, I'm, I'm also a little bit of a re rebel at heart. Uh, when everybody was wearing suits and ties back in the day, I came in jeans. Now everybody comes in jeans, I wear a shirt and tie, you know. <laughs> finding that perfect gift, finding that gift that is ideal, is a challenge. It really is. And, and yet, when we stop and ask ourselves the question, why are we so preoccupied with giving during this season of the year? I mean, why is giving associated with Christmas and, say, like not Halloween? It, 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 it's like, it's a fact. I remember reading somewhere that retail depends heavily on the four weeks between Thanksgiving and Christmas to the tune in some places up to 50% of their revenue is generated from Black Friday through Christmas Day. And so this season is a season of, of tremendous amount of giving. Now this is not a message about conspicuous consumption or, or, or anything like that, but it, it is a message about why we think about giving at this point in time. And of course, you know, for the Christian, we understand that giving is associated with the greatest gift, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. 
And so for the believer, it makes perfect sense to associate giving and sacrificial giving and sharing with others with this time of year when we remember and celebrate the advent of Jesus Christ, the coming of the Word of God, the living Word made flesh and dwelt among us. And as John says in his Gospel, we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so we come to this passage in James chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, where James says every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. And in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. When we think about what we give and the struggle we have to find the perfect gift, we have to recognize right up front that the Father gives the best gifts. Amen? God gives the best gifts. When we think about what we bring forth in our lives, as James said in the passage we read a few minutes ago, when we, what we bring forth in our lives is often much hardship and suffering. James says in chapter 1 that when we fall into trouble and temptation and sin, we shouldn't blame God. We shouldn't look at God and say, you know, this is your fault. What James says is that, look, where does sin come from? Where does all the heartache and the misery and the suffering that the world experiences on a daily basis, on an hourly basis, where does it come from? Well, it comes from within us. It comes from within our, our conflicting desires and our lusts that war against our soul. And that when we give in to those passions and we pursue those desires, they bring forth, as he says, sin. And sin, when it's accomplished, when it's fully realized in our lives, brings forth death. It reminds us of what the Apostle Paul says in the book of Romans, that the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin. What does sin earn? What does sin merit? What is its just deserts? And the Bible says it is death. And of course, when the Bible talks about death, it's not just talking about physical death, although physical death is the actual material manifestation in our world. That things die, things decay, things go from order to disorder, from structure to chaos because of the sin. And it affects all of creation, the Bible says. That Paul says in Romans chapter 8, the whole creation groans and travails because of the sin that has entered into the world. It's not just physical death, though, that is being brought forth in our lives, but death in the Bible always speaks of separation. That when things die, it's not that they cease to exist or that they're obliterated out of existence, but rather they become separated. So when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God had said to them that you eat this fruit, you shall surely die. They ate the fruit, but they didn't die physically right away, but at that moment they were separated from God. They truly did die. They became separated. And you see, that separation from God is a condition in which all human beings at all times experience from the moment that we're born. Because as David said in Psalm 51, in sin I was conceived. We inherit a sinful nature from our parents that makes us have a propensity to sin from the moment we're born. Did you ever notice how we don't have to teach children to disobey 
We don't have lessons on how to rebel. Quite the contrary. From the moment children are born and they throw their food on the floor in defiance of the fact they don't like what you put in front of them, sin nature is revealed. And you see, what James is saying here is that what we bring forth in our lives and in our world is death and corruption and decay. But what God brings forth is every good thing, every perfect gift. gift. And what, what the Father wishes for and what the Father desires and what the Father brings forth in our lives is life. James wants us to understand that the Father gives the best gifts. Notice he says in verse 17 that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father. Good giving. What does it mean for something to be good? Well, in this verse, the word that James used that we translate good in the Greek means that it's inherently good. That it has a quality that is good. And that goodness is profitable and useful and benefiting to others. I'll never forget when I got a Christmas present from a family member once. And I got it. It was a box. It was about this big. And I opened it up. And it was a shoe shine kit. Now, you, how many of you shine shoes a few, I never shine my shoes. I don't have shoes that need to be shined. This was virtually a useless gift. And you see, in one very real sense, that was not a good gift. It was not a good, why? Because it was not profitable to me. It was not useful to me. I mean, people will say, it's the thought that counts. And that's true, but the reality was that as the gift itself, it really, it sat in my basement for a very long time <laughs> until I had the courage to put it in the goodwill box, you know. The reality is that God gives good gifts because they are good in their very nature. Why? Because what he gives is exactly what we need. Think about it. Think about what the greatest gift God has ever given. Think about why Jesus came. Think about the centuries of anticipation when prophets in ancient Israel foretold the coming of the Messiah and what they expected of that Messiah. And as time passed, expectations changed. And the children of Israel under the bondage of Rome wanted to be liberated from a political oppressor. They wanted someone to come and defeat their enemies and set them politically free. To allow them once again to have a kingdom. To be in charge of their own lives. To have a, a government that they could call their own. To not have to pay taxes to a heathen foreign power. This is what they longed for. This is what they anticipated. And into that mix came Jesus. Not as a conquering hero. Not as one riding on a white horse with a sword, a flaming sword to slay God's enemies. He came, as we know from the Christmas story, wrapped in swaddling clothes, 
borrowed in a, a, a birth in a borrowed manger, living as it were in obscurity for most of his life, never ever traveling further than maybe 200 miles from the place of his birth. And yet it was exactly what we needed that God provided in the person of Jesus because we did not need a conquering hero in the sense of overthrowing a material political power. What we needed was a savior who would save us not just from a, a temporary oppression of man, but an eternal separation from God. And that is what Jesus came to do. That his gift to us is one that encompasses every aspect of our lives. And that's why James could say every good gift is from above. And it's interesting because the word he goes on to talk about here being perfect is it's not just about the gift that's perfect. It's the way that the gift is given that is perfect. Another way of rendering this would be every act of giving is perfect, coming down from the Father above. And of course, we note here that James draws our attention to the source, that this is a higher source, that these gifts are coming from above. They don't originate within me, and they don't originate from the world around me. They don't originate from the world around me in the sense that, that while God might use the world around me to benefit me, it, they're not the source. The source is coming down from above. And what is even more striking is that the the way he describes it is that it's continually coming. It wasn't a one-time thing that God did 2,000 years ago when he sent his son into the world to be the savior of sinners, but he's continually giving right down to the present time. He identifies the source of this gift as the father of lights. That's a very interesting designation. It's one of the only times in the scriptures that this designation of God is used, the Father of lights. And of course, it speaks to the stars and the celestial bodies. So the question is, why would James make that reference to the galaxies and the stars and the planets? Why would he link God, our Father, as the Father of lights? Why would he make that connection? Well, there's two things I think that James has in his mind here. The first one is the idea of God's faithfulness. Summer and winter, springtime and harvest, sun, moon, and stars in their courses above. Join with all nature in manifold witness to thy great faithfulness, mercy, and love. Great is your faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. When James references God the Father as the Father of lights, he has in his mind the the idea that as the seasons turn, as the stars make their course in the heavens, as the planets make their revolutions, there is a faithfulness that is testament in the natural order of things. We mark the changing of the seasons. We set our calendars by the, the rotation of the earth around the sun. And there's a predictability to this, a reliability to this. And the father of lights is the one who's behind it all. And so James is pointing out to us 
that our God is a God of faithfulness who is continually providing for us, continually giving to us. But he's also highlighting the fact that while he's the father of lights, he is not like them. They change. They age. But he has no shadow. There is no variation in him. As the psalmist would say, of old you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. Yes, they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will change them and they will be changed. But you are the same and your years will have no end. As the hymn writer says, Our God, O God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, be thou our guard while troubles last and our eternal home. You see, James has in his mind in this expression of the Father of lights, not only God's faithfulness, but God's unchangeable nature. That while God is faithful, he is also unchanging. While the stars make their course above, they're constantly in motion. The galaxies themselves are constantly moving. And the more we discover about them, we find out that the whole universe is in motion. But God remains the same. So what can we say about this as we we think about this? What are some of the things that we can walk away with from this? The first thing is this. That God's giving is always good. His giving is always good. Spurgeon writes, Ascribe all evil to yourself, to the world, to Satan, but ascribe all good unto God. Every good and every perfect gift, every grain of goodness, every trace of excellence that there is in the world comes from him, but no evil ever comes from him. We think about the the life that we live, and we think about the world in which we live. We've just celebrated Thanksgiving. We think about all the blessings that we have. And it must be frustrating. It must be frustrating for an atheist to feel gratitude. Who am I thankful to? When I wake up and I see a sunrise, and it wells up within me a a feeling of of gratitude and a welling of joy, where do I point that? Where do I direct that? It's not from me. I had no hand in it, no part in it. And yet there I am, feeling grateful to someone I do not know and cannot see. His giving is always good. We think about the, the, the trials that we go through in life. We think about the difficulties we face. And if we are knowledgeable of the scriptures, we understand that God is sovereign, that God allows things into our lives, that God permits things. And so, yes, when we have food on the table and clothes on our back and a roof over our head and our our checkbook has got a positive balance and we're not worried about collection letters or notices and and we feel uh, the love of family and friends and we're surrounded by people we like and who agree with us, It feels wonderful and gratitude flows fairly easily. 
But when the opposite of that is true, when we've lost our jobs or we're facing difficulty at work or there's strife in our home and in our families and we are going through difficulties, it becomes very difficult to feel grateful in those circumstances. And James would go on to say that, that we have to be careful about how we ascribe to God the, the, the problems in our lives. And yet he said earlier in chapter 1 that we read, when you go into all kinds of troubles and trials, consider it joy. How is it possible that we could go through difficult things in our lives and think about them in such a way, reckon them in such a way, that we put them in the plus column rather than in the minus column? Well, in chapter 1 earlier, James says, well, God's got a plan in these things. He's producing a character in your life. He's working something out. It's called endurance. It's called character. Let it work. Let it reach fulfillment. And here he's telling us that when these things come into our lives and there are stresses and there's problems and there's, there's difficulties, that when we're under those trials, if we persevere, we receive a crown. There's a reward that comes with obedience and perseverance in the midst of these trials. And here in the passage we've been focusing on, he reminds us that even these things that are hard are still good. Not to deny that there's suffering, not to deny that there's evil in the world, not to deny that the sinful choices that people make can have a terrible impact on our lives, not to ignore any of those things. The Bible never calls evil good. But what it does say is that God has the power to transcend that evil. That God has a power to take what was meant for our evil and turn it into our good. And so whatever you're going through, whatever struggle you might be facing, it's still true that God's giving is always good and he always gives in a perfect way. And you might say, how is that possible? You don't know the struggles I'm going through. You don't know what's happening in my family. You don't know my past. You don't know the things that have been done to me or the things that I have done. How is it possible that you can say that? Well, I can tell you this. I don't know your story. You don't know mine. But I will tell you the story where the worst crime in human history was perpetrated against the most innocent person. A brutal torture followed by an excruciating death. It was every injustice imaginable. And yet it is that very act that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And so while I can't explain it, I can point you to the cross and say, look, this is how God deals with suffering. He takes the worst we throw at him. He takes the worst that we are. He carries it himself to a cross, suffers, bleeds, and dies so that he could declare us righteous and bring us home. His giving is always good. 
Spurgeon writes in Morning and Evening for December 1st, Winter in the soul is by no means a comfortable season. And if it be upon thee just now, it will be very painful to thee. But there is this comfort, namely, the Lord makes it. He is the great winter king and rules in the realms of frost. And therefore you cannot murmur. Losses, crosses, heaviness, sickness, poverty, and a thousand other hills, ills are the Lord sending and come to us with wise design. Let us draw near to him and in him find joy and peace in believing. We think of him as the son of righteousness, but he is also the winter king, the one who rules over those dark, cold moments of our lives where we cannot even imagine what springtime looks like. But his giving is always good. How can we endure this? How can we survive these moments in our life? We can because he doesn't change. He is with us in the sunshine, and he is with us in the darkness. He is with us when, as we sometimes say, life goes by like a song, and he's with us in the times when that song turns into a lament. Oh, how sweet the glorious message simple faith may claim. Yesterday, today, forever. Jesus is the same. Still he loves to save the sinful, heal the sick and lame, cheer the mourner, still the tempest, glory to his name. Yesterday, today, forever, Jesus is the the same. All may change, but Jesus never. Glory to his name. All may change, but Jesus never. I don't know if I've shared this with you, but one of the things that I've been dealing with over the last six months or so, is just sort of the reminder of my own mortality. My daughter got married back in May, and some of you were at that wedding. It was a great day. Uh, And it was a wonderful time, but she moved to North Carolina with her husband, and I'm still trying to forgive him for that, but I'll get there. Um, But the reality is that I've been reminded that nothing remains the same in this side of eternity. The hair gets grayer, if we still have it. Um... The body slows down, the aches and pains multiply, and life becomes hard. All may change, but Jesus never. So we look at this, we say, oh, wow, okay. So he always gives good things, and I can endure, I can improve. I can endure all the changes of life, all the vicissitudes of life, because he remains the one constant. And, and finally, when we look at this, he's saying in verse 17 that he is, these, these gifts are continually coming down. They're continually coming down. And so finally, in verse 17, I can walk away with this, that he's always more ready to give than we are to receive. He is always more ready to give than we are to receive. Why? He says, John, in Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul writes, he who did not spare his own son, 
but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? Paul would write in Ephesians, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And Peter would write in his second epistle, His divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue. He is always more ready to give than we are to receive. We go through our lives and we struggle and we wrestle with issues and, we, and, we're, and, he, and there He stands by waiting to give us what we need, but we're so busy trying to figure it out ourselves that we won't take time to actually receive it from Him. I think about the people that I work with, the people I go to school with every day who are just going through their lives and God is ready to give them the gift of eternal life and they don't want to receive it. That he is ready to give them the most valuable gift that, that has been purchased by the life and death of his son. That this gift is absolutely free, freely given, and can be freely received. According to Romans chapter 4, this is a gift that is freely received. There's, nothing, there's no transaction here. There's no going to God with a bargain. There's no promise of commitment and loyalty and pledge. And I'm going to do this, God, and I'll do that if you just give me this gift. It's not a gift then. It's a purchase. And you can't afford it. The price has been paid in full. He is so ready to give it. The question is, are you ready to receive it? Because in the exercise of his will, verse 18, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. You see, the word there of his own will, he brought us forth. God's will is to give us this gift. He is far more ready to give than we are to receive. He wills us. To be brought forth. It reminds me of John chapter 1 verse 12 where it says, As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. And verse 13 goes on to says this, Which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I like what Warren Wiersbe says about this. He says, No one can be born again because of his relatives, his resolutions, or his religion. No one can be born again because of his relatives, because of his resolutions, or because of his religion. Listen, just because I have eternal life, that doesn't mean my children are going to have eternal life. Just because they have eternal life doesn't mean I'm going to have eternal life. I can't will it into the life of another person. You can't either. It doesn't matter how much you love them. You cannot give them the gift of eternal life. You cannot will it into being. And no matter how many resolutions you might make, no matter how many promises you might make to God, no matter how much you give to Him, to the church, or how much you try to obey all the laws that you see in the Bible, you can't do it. All the resolutions in the world is not going to do it. And there's no religion on earth that can actually give you this life. There's nothing that man can produce in their own righteousness that can procure the gift of eternal life because it wouldn't be a gift. It is God's prerogative. It is God's prerogative to save. And he doesn't want our efforts. He wants our trust. 
He wants our faith. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. And you see, that's the dynamic. The word of truth. The word of truth. The word that God speaks. The word that God says. The word revealed here in the Bible. And the word as it was revealed in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is the vehicle in which I get my trust in. I put my faith in. And when I put my faith in that word... God wills I be born again. I can't make that happen. But when God speaks to me and he says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. When Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes on him who sent me shall have eternal life. They shall not come into judgment, but they have passed from death unto life. That when I hear those words, I believe them. And he says to those who believe, he gives the right to become the children of God. We celebrate the birth of Christ. And in a very real sense, the birth of Christ is the Word made flesh. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And God, the Word, made all things, John chapter 1 tells us. And in John 1, 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have beheld His glory. Christ was the living word, speaking the living word. It is he who said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And it is that word that brings us life. James says, he birthed us. He fathers us. He gives us new life by the word of truth. The Father of lights brings the word of life into our lives. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. Jesus declared, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. While you have the light, believe in the light in order that you may become sons of light. I have come as light into the world that everyone who believes in me may not remain in darkness. And as the prophet of old said, those who have dwelt in darkness have seen a great light. Have you seen it this morning? Have you heard the word of truth this morning? Because what Christ does in our life is that he gives us a new life that we become, as James says here, kind of first fruits. Now, you know, the readers of James' letter would understand that because in the Old Testament, the Jewish people were required to bring the first fruits for offering. And what were the first fruits? Well, they were the best. They were the chosen. You see what James is saying there? We become the best. We become the chosen. We become the selected. 
We are the beginning of what God is doing in creation. He came from above and he came down into the world we live in. The world, light of the world came down into the darkness to introduce us to the Father of lights. His desire is to make us new creations in Christ. That the word made flesh might be fleshed out in our lives in obedience to him. He fathered us and fathers us through the word of truth. And while we live in this world, all the things that we go through, all things work together for our good. Why? Because all may change, but he remains the same. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you this morning for this opportunity to to hear your word spoken, and we pray, God, that by your spirit, he would take this word and apply it to our hearts. And Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who's never personally trusted in Christ, who's never asked you to be their Savior, who's never cried out to you, Lord, save me, I pray that even now they might, in these quiet moments, reach out and receive what you have to give them. Help them to see that it's a gift and it's free. And that the only response is to trust the promise of the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I pray, God, as we go into this season of celebration, that as we search for the best gifts to give our loved ones, that we would always be reminded, even as we're buying and shopping, of the best gift has already been given. And that even our giving would be an act of worship. We pray this for your glory in Jesus' name.